Where does your mind go when you allow it to wander? Do you find yourself thinking of the unknown, trying to separate fact from fiction? Welcome to my mini-series, where we discuss possible explanations for the unexplainable. My name is Ray, and these are things that keep me up at night. Everybody. Hey guys, my name is Gage. And my name is Ray. And yes, you are still listening to Gore Report, a true crime podcast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> back for another volume of things that keep me up at night. Oh, you're so excited. I didn't get a chance to properly introduce it. But yes, this is things that keep me up at night. If you don't know what these episodes are about, please make sure that you check out the first installment because that... I kind of give you, you know, a blueprint of what this is going to be. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But as I did say in the first installment, that this is going to be randomized bullshit right off the top of my dome. <laughs> <laughs> Things that you literally lose sleep over. Exactly, exactly. And if you're new here, hi, hello, and welcome. Oh, definitely. Welcome, welcome. We're glad to have you always. We, uh, you know, sprinkle these episodes in as kind of a mental health break. So if you've been binging, like so many of you have been binging, we love you all. Yes, thank <laughs> you. It's so crazy to think about, honestly. But all of the comments are so appreciated. It still blows my mind when someone's like, oh, yeah, I binged your show in like a week. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? You can actually tolerate us for that long? <laughs> <laughs> I've, it's just one of those things, man. I think it's incredible. All of our listeners are fantastic. We genuinely appreciate all of you. I cannot say that enough. Yes. I just can't. Big, big, big hugs. All of the hugs. Consensual hugs. Consensual. Consensual only. Because we love you. And consent is? Important. Yes, yes, <laughs> oh, yes. That's the golden rule, kiddos. That is our motto here, 100%. So, as I've said in our first installment of things that keep me up at night. I am a bit of a conspiracy theorist, but I always carry around a baggage of skepticism <laughs> on my travels. Just a tiny little bag of skepticism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not tinfoil hat level, but bitch, there have been some things, especially that have been coming out here lately that I can't wait to dabble my fingertips into. I'm a little nervous because I also believe that things actually happening in the real world are obviously much scarier than things that are, you know, made up in a fiction. I don't know. So I'm a little nervous. I got a pocket, got a pocket full of suspicion. <laughs> suspicion. Well, I've always said that life is stranger than fiction, and the unknown is shrouded in mystery and fear. Even if we are told the absolute truth, would you be open-minded enough to believe it? We're talking about Victorian unwrapping parties. Victorian unwrapping parties? Yes. Ooh, wee. I can we say are, I don't really know a lot about this. We are going down a path that is crazy, and I personally didn't believe it until I looked it up. 
But we are going to be talking about one of the most macabre and the most shocking practices, I think, to ever come out of the 19th century. Oh, shit. Yeah. So the Victorian era was not as romantic as Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice may have you believe. What if I told you that cannibalism was quite common not only in medicine, but also entertainment? Holy shit. So to begin, I would like to first give you the rundown on how cannibalism was considered medicine. Because those are two things that do not belong in a sentence together. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I can I can say that I agree with that. But mummies or other types of preserved fresh human remains were a common ingredient for medicines and believed to heal all kinds of ailments. Wow. Now, this practice has been followed for hundreds of years. It began sometime in the 12th century, but its peak points were during the 16th and 17th centuries. People would regularly ingest these homeopathic medicines that contained human bones, blood, and fat. Wow, I did not know that. This practice spread like wildfire because priests, scientists, and even royalty were in on the train. So no one really wanted to oppose these upper-class people. If it's working for them, it'll work for us, right? Right. I mean, we see that today, every day. If a rich person tells you they're using such and such products in their everyday life, you're going to want to go get that, right? Right. Because you want to be where they are in their life. Like, you want to be successful and healthy and rich like that person. I curse you, capitalism. Right? So it was... (laughs) It was basically that kind of mindset back then. That's why no one was like, um, hey, I don't think we should be doing this. (laughs) Like, this seems like a little much. This is a lot. I didn't sign up for this. (laughs) But, you know, the product physicians created from the mummified remains that were shipped from Egyptian tombs was called mummia. Mummia. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And this substance was consumed by many people, regardless if they were rich or poor. And it was widely available in apothecary shops. Like, my brain immediately made me think of a CVS trip to pick up over-the-counter meds. But that's that's how available this stuff was. You just go in and get mummia. Yes. Goodness gracious, that's so... That's just so weird, man. Yeah, yeah. Oh. and trust me, I didn't I didn't know that this was a thing until I researched it and I was like, this this is wow. <laughs> <laughs> but for centuries it was believed that human remains ground up and then tinctured could cure anything from a headache to staunching internal bleeding. Even so far as saying it would cure the be the bubonic plague what that's quite a claim i almost said bubonic (laughs) (laughs) but yeah bubonic plague bubonic Bubonic. (laughs) so the skulls of the deceased were a common ingredient in these so-called remedies and usually it was taken in powdered form to cure headaches like it was one of those bc powders or something Human fat would be rendered into a balm, and that balm would be used to treat external issues. 
So rubbing this fat into the skin was a common remedy for gout. And German doctors would prescribe bandages that would be soaked in this fat to wrap the target area like wild shit that in is, human fat. Uh, I just could not imagine. This is a part of history I was totally unfamiliar with. <laughs> so here's a fun fact that I thought was interesting. There was a type of moss that they called usnea that would grow and attach itself to some of these skulls. And this was considered a top-shelf herb and considered a prized additive to cure things like nosebleeds or epilepsy. And wow. that is a huge jump from minuscule to major, but okay. Right. You know? Right. But anyway, these remains could be used in a variety of ways. Thomas Willis, who was considered a pioneer and a genius in the field of brain science in the 17th century... He brewed a drink for apoplexy, which is basically organ failure because the organs don't have proper blood flow. So that drink was composed of powdered human skull and chocolate. Powdered human skull and chocolate? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. I said chocolate like that, and then the whole SpongeBob thing, chocolate. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but that's so, uh, again, like, I don't even know what to say to that. That's just, like, imagining consuming chocolate with, like, a top layer of good old crunchy human skull. Right, but, like. There's just no fucking way. <laughs> from what I understand out of my research, it tasted disgusting as you can imagine i bet it did like i just but uh. people have been consuming it for centuries oh my god so another example is king charles ii of england not not king charles king charles um he suffered a seizure and since human skulls were used to cure neurological conditions until 1909 he sipped on an elixir called the King's Drops, which contained a mixture of a human skull in alcohol. Holy shit. Yeah. Ugh. And he would just sip on this several times a day. Just casual yeah. human skull cocktail. Yeah. Oh, man. A report specified that mummia appeared to be suitable for members of royalty and the social elite because doctors claim mummia was made from pharaohs making, quote, royalty eat royalty. What the fuck? Right. Oh, no. <laughs> well, you know, back then it was really common. They would, you know, want to keep royal bloodlines pure, so to speak. So a lot of them married cousins. A lot of them... You know. Wow. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Yeah, incest was uh, pretty prevalent. I never cease to be so utterly disappointed in humanity. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Just the disappointment. No. Because the demand for human remains was so high, grave diggers robbed and sold body parts. And apparently this was a lucrative business because there was absolutely little to no regard as mummies were stolen from their tombs, skulls were taken from burial sites all over, and there was absolutely no shortage of product, basically. That's so horrible, though. Like, 
desecrating these people's bodies and their grave sites? Like, mm-hmm. God, that's awful. But like, genuinely, could, that's so awful. If I was going to play devil's advocate, you could also say, well, what about people who are organ donors? I mean, just devil's advocate. That's something to I think mean, about. true. But I think maybe that differentiating factor would be the consent. True. Because like if you're an, <laughs> if you're an organ donor, then like you obviously have decided that's what you want to happen after right. you're gone. But like these people that were just grave robbed after death, I don't know, man. I don't. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I do. I you do. You see what I'm saying? I do. Like I, I get your point too, but like I don't know. It's just like I'm very fucking weird about the dead <laughs> and like the other side and shit, man. Like I'm not about to not about to mess right. with any of that. Not good. It's not a good thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Just not a good thing to do. Not a good thing. (laughs) So blood was also something that had to be procured as fresh as possible because blood was seen as the vitality of the body. So if I was sick and I drank fresh blood, it would medically revitalize my body. That was the belief. In the 16th century, there was a physician named Paracelsus, and he believed blood was okay to drink, and one of his followers suggested the blood had to come from a living body. It had to be fresh from the vein. With this belief circulating health conversations, the poor couldn't afford to go to the apothecary, so whenever there was a public execution, you would have people giving the executioner small amounts of money in exchange for a cup of blood from the executed. Yeah. So, oh my God. So blood was very powerful because the spirit of the person was heavily regarded as part of the physical body because it linked the body to the soul. So they believed by ingesting the blood, they would heal and gain health or strength from the person they were ingesting. And as sick as it sounds, the younger the better. And if they were a virgin, that was a plus. Humans are fucking barbaric. Like, barbaric as fuck. That is my only statement at this point. I am, like, kind of blown. Because, you know, I'm a history nerd anyways. Right. I love learning about morbid history and just things of that nature. But I truly didn't know about, like, this little section here that we're talking about. I'm not as familiar with this. So I'm like. And I'm just laying down. Brick by brick, so you understand how we got to the Victorian unwrapping parties. Gotcha, gotcha. Giving us a little history yeah, lesson. A little history lesson. Just, you know, holding your hand as we walk through this terrible journey together. <laughs> through things that our ancestors did. I mean, my God. <laughs> <laughs> the list goes on. <laughs> the list goes on. I found a quote from Leonardo da Vinci on the topic, and he would dissect human bodies, and he made accurate drawings of what he saw. Right, right. Uh, But according to him, quote, We preserve our life with the dead of others. In a dead thing, insensate life remains which, when it is reunited with the stomachs of the living, regains sensitive and intellectual life, end quote. Wow. That's a lot of... A lot of fanciness there, but, you know, from what I understand of this, he is basically saying that through our dead, we replenish our life. Right. I I gathered that. Sort of like the cycle of life, I guess. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
So Beth A. Conklin is a cultural and medical anthropologist at Vanderbilt University, and her field of study and publications are specifically about cannibalism in the Americas. I'm introducing her quote here because I felt it was super important when understanding the concept behind using human remains in medicine or maybe even spiritual practice. But she said, quote, The one thing that we know is that almost all non-Western cannibal practice is deeply social in the sense that the relationship between the eater and the one who is eaten matters, end quote. Holy hell. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you guys could just see the look on my face right now, I'm just, wow. Right. And here's the bit that made me think hard. Quote, in the European process, this was largely erased and made irrelevant. Human beings were reduced to simple biological matter equivalent to any other kind of commodity medicine, end quote. And that's interesting if you let your mind wander to our own medical advances with stem cells, blood transfusions, organ transplants, skin grafts, and using cadaver bone to reinforce a living human spine. Like, these are things that we do today. Right, right. And, I mean, that's, it's morbid, but it it, it is true, though. Right. right. That concept of replenishing life from death or using elements of death in life. I do see that. Like that actually does. It does make sense. It's just woo wee. It's a it's a wee bit morbid. Stuff. <laughs> right. Just a wee bit morbid. And I mean, we could talk about this all day, but let's get to the point. The cannibal methods were dying out because science sprung forward and we learned how to use corpse medicine or living medicine in a different way. Now, in the 17th century, doctors still thought that there were four fluids or humors in the body, which was blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And you would become ill if you had too much of one humor. But during this time, a more scientific approach to medicine emerged, and doctors began to question traditional methods. So by the 18th and 19th century, the Victorian era... Doctors still believed in the four humors. They still couldn't figure out where diseases were coming from, and corpse medicine was working to make a comeback yet again. Late examples of corpse medicine that I found were recorded in 1847 and 1880. Mummies even made an appearance as medicine in a German medical catalog at the beginning of the 20th century. And in 1908, there was a brief revival of trying to drink blood at the scaffold in Germany. My God. So, that is a lot of backstory. So now we're slowly getting toward the unwrapping parties. Are you familiar with the term Egyptomania? Egyptomania? Um, I want to say yes, I think I do. But because I'm unsure in my answer, I'm, like, not going to say it because I don't want to look like a dumbass. So, <laughs> so we're, we're not going to assume. <laughs> Egyptomania played a huge role in the exploitation of the Egyptian people and their culture, especially their dead. So during Napoleon's Egyptian campaign in the 19th century, he was accompanied by scientists and scholars with the interest in documenting ancient monuments. So this rekindled interest in Egypt and Egyptomania had England's upper class in a chokehold. <laughs> like, boy. You said in a chokehold. In hold. a chokehold. 
1815, an Italian showman and circus strongman named Giovanni Belzoni, or the Great Belzoni, he went to Cairo to offer the founder of modern Egypt, Muhammad Ali Pasha, hydraulic engines that would aid in their irrigation systems. So two years later, he became a prolific explorer and what they call a pioneer archaeologist, meaning he was, by today's standards, pillaging. Wow, okay. So Great. He was, no. Right. <laughs> by any means necessary, I guess, you know. <laughs> you better fucking stop with that southern shit. I can't. <laughs> but he was excavating Egyptian tombs and temples for whatever treasure he could find with little to no regard for any damage done to items that were considered less desirable in the world of antiquity. I fucking hate that. I okay. Um, I'm gonna start a campaign on this episode. It's called L- America. Let's not fucking bother the dead. Let's not bother <laughs> our dead. Let's not bother anyone else's dead. Let's just not bother the dead. Let's not bother the dead. Can we do that? I just think that's really important. Right next to us having an organization to prevent bald eagles from going bald. Bitch. <laughs> hey. This is where my brain goes, you know? Like, these are things that are important. Uh, All right, so why is this guy important, right? Why am I introducing you to him? In 1821, Giovanni unwrapped a mummy for public spectacle for the first time in an Egypt exhibition near London's Piccadilly Circus. Over 2,000 people attended this unwrapping. It was considered to be so successful that he unwrapped two more mummies that same year in front of an audience. Again, humans are barbaric. Like, that is fucking crazy. So in this crowd was Thomas Pettigrew, who was a surgeon, a scholar, and by all accounts, an opportunist. On January 15th, 1834, Thomas Pettigrew sold out an event at the Royal College of Surgeons, where upper-class Londoners that got their hands on a ticket watched as he slowly unrolled an authentic Egyptian mummy of the 21st dynasty in the name of science. But, really, he saw how successful the turnout was, saw it could be lucrative, and sickening further, he capitalized on it. Of course he did. He would be the one responsible for this viral interest throughout the upper-class citizens, selling tickets to public events where he would unwrap a real mummy and give a lecture. People who considered themselves to be intellectual would, in turn, host their own unwrapping party in both public settings and private residences. What? How in the hell were people getting mummies? Like, all of these dead. How the fuck were people just getting that? Oh, we're going to get into that, so... You're asking, what's the point? Like, what are the unwrapping parties? Okay, so now we're going to get into the unwrapping party. Oh, shit. First, you'd probably get your hands on the invite. And I included a photo in our picture dump that is from 1850. And it says right on the invitation, quote, a mummy from Thebes to be unrolled at half past two, end quote. That is, uh, it's crazy, like... It's like a dinner party. Yeah. They're like, oh, here we are on a fucking Saturday, half past two. Come on out, have a drink. We're going to unwrap a fucking mummy. That's literally what happened. Oh, my God. 
So this bothers me because you've disturbed a grave with the intention of defiling this carefully tended corpse that someone loved and someone buried so you can have dinner, drinks, and dinero. That is literally just insane to me. Truly, it's insane. People were sucked into this practice because you never knew what was going to happen at one of these parties. Artifacts and jewelry wrapped inside the dressings was a possibility. The remains themselves might have a strange abnormality, or a body believed to be a princess could actually be someone entirely different. These people would basically ooh and awe themselves to death until it was time for souvenirs. That is so fucked up. Like, that is so incredibly fucked up to me. <laughs> so people would usually get a small sample of the cloth wrapping to take home with them unless they dared to take home something a little more human. God, why? Oh. So they would literally go to these private residences. Like, the private residences sometimes would have dinner, drinks, let's unwrap a mummy. Like, again, like, the, the casualness of it, it's literally like a fucking friendly get-together, like a Sunday cookout or something, and you're unwrapping dead people. So these mummies weren't just unwrapped, oh by the way. Ugh. They were ravaged. The bodies were usually dismembered and given away as mementos or sold to Egypt enthusiasts with a private collection. The amount of information we could have learned about ancient Egypt had this not been a thing, is insane to think about. I just think it's so sad, too. Like, it's such an attack on Egyptian culture, I feel like. Like, that's so wrong. Like, that you're just, you're going over, you're taking these people out of their tombs, out of their eternal resting places, away from their homeland, so you can desecrate them at your fucking dinner party on a Saturday night. Well, it wasn't just... Like, it that's so fucked up. It wasn't just the white people doing the shit, though. There was there was people in Egypt, as I will explain here in a minute, that were struggling to keep up with the demand, so to speak. That is just so insane. Like, so, I'm truly blown by this, that this is an area of history that I just didn't know about. Like, I, you, you hear a lot about... This is not the stuff they teach you in school, okay? Right, right. This is not <laughs> the kind of shit you learn in school, but I'm I'm a mix between... Like a kid in a candy store because I love history and I love learning about history. So I'm like uber fascinated right now. But right. like the other half of me is just so devastated, disgusted. Right. Like with humanity. Like I just it doesn't surprise me that this was a thing, but it does surprise the hell out of me that this was a thing. It's like I said, humans never cease to just fucking impress me in the worst way. <laughs> you know, like Jesus. So another thing they did at these parties was open the skulls of these mummies for science, of course. But they would make mummy drinks, powdered mummy skull in whatever drink of choice for, quote unquote, health benefits. Oh, my God. Demand was so high for mummies that the fledgling tourist industry in Egypt transported mummies from the least visited places of the country to place in their more popular ruins in order to satisfy foreign visitors who came to see a mummy discovery. Jesus. So mummies from all, like buried mummies from all over, not just like in Cairo 
or, you know, other really high important places in Egypt. It was all over I can't, Egypt. I can't name names of cities right now. I'm sorry. But um, they were taken from all over around in less populated areas to go to these hot spots and stage the mummy there. Jesus, man. Yeah. That is so fucked up. And then counterfeit mummies became a thing. Slaves, criminals, and homeless people began to disappear. Oh people my God. who were considered less dead, who wouldn't be missed if they were gone. So these dregs of society were murdered, basically, and turned into genuine Egyptian mummies to be funneled through this new enterprise. Oh, my God. Even a few camels were part of this unfortunate practice. They killed camels? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I absolutely despise humans. Now, as time passed, ethics of this practice were questioned and the interest in these unwrapping parties waned. Not only was it considered to be dated, but people just grew bored with it. Like, wow. Yeah. Like any trend, it hits hard for a while and then it fizzles out. Like, I'll give you an example. The discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb fueled another craze or trend, which not only carved a pathway in Art Deco designs everywhere, but shook people to their core, believing in King Tut's mummy curse. Right, I I remember all of that. I've actually, I don't know if you've been, because you didn't go with me when I went, but um, in Atlanta, they actually had a Titanic uh, exhibit and a King Tut exhibit. and I, I went, didn't get a chance to go to either one, and I, I was so mad. I went to both of them, and the King Tut exhibit was honestly super fascinating. But, like, me basically saying, like, I get what you're saying. Like, I remember because they talked about the curse and, like, you know, when his tomb was unearthed, basically, like, when they discovered his tomb and shit. So, so for those of you that don't know, Lord Carnarvon who was the sponsor of the Tutankhamun expedition, suddenly died in 1923. Mm -hmm. Now, he died of natural causes, but everyone believed it was because he dug up King Tut, which created a huge superstition about unearthing these mummies. Which, honestly, I can believe. Return the slab <laughs> or suffer my curse. Was it a curse or was it guilt? Both. Mummy unwrapping parties ended as the 20th century began because the whole idea seemed to be in bad taste. Not only were they carrying out mass destruction of human remains that hold great archaeological significance, but the sheer disrespect of one's beliefs and practices is highly regrettable. And I say it that way. Because we can't deny the fact that destructive fads or trends that claim to be backed by science exist even in today's times. And this cycle repeats itself as generations move along. Those people actually believed that mummia was medicine. They were swept up in their morbid curiosity and fantasies rooted in Orientalism. And they were ignorant to the fact that their actions were harmful not only to themselves but to others. And that concludes these Victorian unwrapping parties. What a great episode. Like, this was seriously such a good episode. I am obsessed with your miniseries, my friend. <laughs> I am a fan. Yay! I am genuinely a fan. Yay! 
Please. And I want to say, too, because I, I kind of went on this tangent earlier. I was talking about, you know, I'm a history nerd. This is kind of an area of history that I'm not really familiar with and I mm-hmm. hadn't learned about in depth, Um, especially not the way that, you know, you came out swinging. But uh, <laughs> this really blows my mind. Like, it truly blows my mind. Like, this turned out to be such a horrible, like, bigger picture. Like, it's even bigger than just the unwrapping parties. It's like this whole barbaric nature of humans and some weird obsession that we have with death and wanting to see death and witness death and interact with death. It just blows my mind. Like, it's the unwrapping parties. It's the mass murder of people to create said mummies because you know the demand was so high it's the complete disregard for the dead right i just think this is fucking awful like this is truly some morbid ass history like straight up i am very uncomfortable i see how you lost sleep over this yes i definitely see how you lost sleep over this but i mean good job good job bitch (laughs) And, and what's crazy is like i was sitting here and i was working on this episode and you know There is a conspiracy theory that the reason why you never see people expanding on graveyards is because the bodies are being fed back to us through fast food. What? Yes. Now, of course, I always hold my my moment of skepticism, but thinking on what we just covered and how, you know, the dead was used to supplement the living. Right. And the ignorance behind that of people's culture and and everything because it was a fad. It was a trend. It was, you know, the next big thing. Jesus. I mean, no, you make a good point. I guess we may have a future volume. Of course. Of course. I would like to delve into that a little bit deeper. That might be a future episode. But it was something that just popped in my brain while we were sitting here talking about this. Because, like... Well, I mean, if you think about it, like, the Victorian era... When all of this was, you know, happening, the unwrapping parties and shit, that was a long time ago, but it wasn't that long it, it wasn't ago. That and long that's ago. what's scary. Like, it's not incredibly way in the past. It's it's actually a little more what I would consider to be semi-recent history. Mm-hmm. But regardless, that's that's a that's a whole nother tangent <laughs> and a whole nother rabbit hole that I'm not capable to go down right now. I'm still <laughs> recovering from the... Uh, the unwrapping dinner parties. I'm still very much recovering from that. So, <laughs> so this is going to be where we wrap up things today, you guys. Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird... <laughs> well, you can totally do that. Find us on Facebook at... Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. At our report. Hi, Squidward. Every week he's coming back a little bit more. The Squidward revival is underway. <laughs> don't forget our email, guys. GoreReportPod at gmail.com. You don't have to, but you can totally send us an email. And if you are indeed laying, thinking, pondering, lying awake at night, then I wish you sweet dreams. But remember, it's all right.